morning. How are you? You're doing well? Spring is springing? Fall, spring? I don't know. What, what are we going to do? But uh, hopefully. And uh, welcome to those of you that are joining us online as well. If we haven't met, uh, my name is Greg, one of the pastors. And I just was noticing we're in week nine of our series on Nehemiah Rebuilding Out of Brokenness. And today is also a one-year anniversary of our last donut-induced church gathering Sunday morning. And then uh, our last gathering a year ago today, we had that Journey Wall Summit, because uh, I remember it was the second Sunday in March, and then I, uh, I went back home, and uh, the staff was deciding whether we should have service on the following Sunday, and we chose not to. I think that was Barbara saying no. I was trying to say yes, but it was a good thing we didn't. And who knew that a year later we'd, we'd be like this? So uh, here we go. Hopefully things are changing. My wife got her vaccine. Who's got a vaccine so far? Anybody? Oh, I don't see a lot of hands, but a few. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Hopefully it'll change. Uh, one thing that I need to own um, we've had this online survey about getting back together and things like that, and a lot of people, some people, I don't know the percentage, you know, are excited to get the children's ministry downstairs back up and running. And I have been the primary hindrance uh, to that happening. And so I just want to own that. I just have not felt comfortable uh, putting kids and volunteers at risk. And so that's on me, but we are starting to think about that, and shortly we hope after Easter that can re-flourish, and so we are looking to rebuild those teams. And so if you're interested in participating in that as a teacher or volunteer or whatever you'd like to, uh, I would certainly, we would certainly like to hear from you. So happy to have Tara, our interim online elementary age person who's writing curriculum for our series in Nehemiah. Grateful to her. Um, let's see, the sermon today is kind of three parts. Uh, this last week in our staff, we do a devotional in our staff meeting. We also had an elders meeting this last week. We do a devotional in the elders meeting. And the devotional that I did for the staff and the devotional I sent to the elders was uh, a leadership taxonomy of change from the book of Nehemiah. And I mentioned in the elders meeting, you know, we haven't looked at the leadership gifting capacity of Nehemiah much in our nine weeks of studying Nehemiah. One of the elders said, well, why not? And so today what I thought I'd do is give you a review. I, I do like to review when I have a chance and we're into a book of the Bible. And I do like to provide a review for you from a little different perspective. And so today we'll do that. And then we want to look at exactly what Nehemiah 10 says. But then I hope you'll see that we can pivot and we can take a look at what it means to be part of a, 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 uh, an active, intentional member of a church. And so we're going to look at that, just a brief overview of that. So those are the three things that we'll be looking at today. You could say it's three mini-sermons, but I think there's a thread 
that runs through it all. So let me start with just a couple of questions for you to think about. The first question is, have you ever been truly unified with a group of people? Truly unified with a group of people. Has that ever happened with you or for you? And here's another question that kind of goes with that. Uh, what does true unity look like? How do you know when you have it? That's a good question, isn't it? And I think we can, we can attempt to begin to answer that today. Here's three uh, perspectives about or observations about unity from me. Uh, the first one is disunity in the church breeds atheism in the culture. That's true. And I think we need to pay attention uh, to that. Uh, disunity in the church does breed atheism in the culture. Number two, we tend to make unity a goal, and it's not. It's a fruit. And so that's, that's very helpful, because a lot of people, a lot of businesses try to make unity the goal, and it's, it never is. It's like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. We don't get love by trying to get love. We get love by connecting with Jesus. And so if, if unity is a fruit, what's the goal? And that's the third one. Unity is the fruit of people moving together toward the same goal. When visionary servant leadership is carried out, unity is the natural, harmonic, and organic fruit of that. Sounds very Californianish, doesn't it? No, the natural, harmonic, and organic. That kind of defines Californians. So, I'm so sorry. Uh, so anyway, those are some thoughts about unity. And what we see happening in the book of Nehemiah, we, we, we see humble servant leadership with, vis with vision building unity that results in spiritual renewal. So what I want to say to you is spiritual renewal doesn't just happen. I mean, it could, but usually it's, it's the process that leads up to it. And to flourish in a business, whatever business you're in outside of church, there's a, there's a process that will lead to a business flourishing. And so these principles will work uh, in church or in business or in a family or, or in life. So unity is a major sub-theme of the Nehemiah narrative. Another connected sub-theme is servant leadership. And when I talk about leadership, I always try and add that servant leadership piece because that's the primary role of good leadership is to serve the larger group. We don't know if Nehemiah was a natural-born leader. It doesn't ever say that. We know that perhaps his passion for God, his passion for people propelled him into this place of leadership. We do know that he was a good manager. We do know he was a good and capable manager because of his role at the palace. He was like the food and beverage guy at the palace. And so we do know that about him. So let's take a quick review uh, of the chapters and examine how strong servant leadership facilitated unity that sustained or resulted in spiritual renewal. This, you could call this a, a, a short and effective leadership coaching 
moment, but it works for church, it works for your household, it works for, for business. And this will be quick. Okay, number one, unity begins with one person's passion for God and for people. If you're a business, a passion for a product or a service. Uh, we see this throughout the book, but it's birthed in Nehemiah 1. And the second principle we see is unity begins to build by truly embracing our current reality with repentance, fasting, and prayer, and planning. Oftentimes, fundraising is important in this process, too. You remember the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, that even the king wanted to invest in, in Nehemiah's plan. It pretty much bankrolled the whole thing. And then number three, unity continues to build as prayer and planning yield a focused vision and strategy. We see this in chapter 2 when Nehemiah shares his vision in kind of a winsome way and the people get on board. Now here's something that I would say about the difference between Old Testament leadership and New Testament leadership. Old Testament uh, leadership tends to be hierarchical from the top down. Uh, and we tend to build companies, organizations, even churches that are still hierarchical in their leadership style. The New Testament is not like that. The New Testament is, is more team-oriented. It's more, it's more team-building. We don't have time to go into all the details about that, but, but the New Testament is much more collaborative. I, I like to use Acts 15 as that example where, where James, they're having the Council of Jerusalem. James gets all this input from everybody, and then he says, great, thanks for the input. This is what we're going to do. And so it's, it's more team-based, so I, I want to... I want organizations, I want churches to move away from that. That pastor gets the vision and then comes and tells everybody and everybody hops to it. That's not the best way to do church or build church. It's for the church to speak and say, what is the Spirit saying to us? And they share that with the staff. They share that with the elders. The elders listen and pray and seek the Lord and then establish what the Spirit is saying and get after it. That's more New Testament. Uh, the fourth one, unity continues to build as people are trained, empowered, and released to serve, which creates, uh, begins to create a self-sustaining momentum. We see this in Nehemiah chapter 3. Number five, to continue the building of unity, obstacles will always need to be overcome through continued prayer and planning. And then there's always various acts of courage that are required to get over certain humps. And number six, unity continues to build as systems and strategies are revised and updated in accordance with the present needs. We see this in Nehemiah 5. I, I, I always remember this uh, church consultant years ago, over 20 years ago, he wrote a book, and the name of the book was Sacred Cows Make Gourmet Burgers. And sometimes, especially in churches, right, you just got to kill and eat that sacred cow. But, you know, we're not doing that anymore. It, it, it had a good run. It was awesome. And let's let it go. And so there's that. And number seven, unity continues to build as short-term wins are celebrated. We see this at the end of Nehemiah 6 when the wall was completed in record time. Um, and number eight, unity continues to build as metrics are recorded and utilized to adjust the course. Some people think that metrics are unbiblical and we should never do that, but, 
in the end, you know, how do we know that 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost? Because somebody counted. How do we know that 5,000 were fed uh, by Jesus? Because somebody counted. Now, because there are even numbers like that, like pastors do, they probably rounded up. So it was up to 3,000, up to 5,000. That's a pastor joke. We round up, we count everything a lot. So anyway, you didn't find that as funny as I do. That's all right. Okay, and then chapters nine, 8, 9, and 10, uh, we see unity blossoming into full-blown renewal, or in a business, you'd say flourishing, where a safe environment has been created. And instead of just one person repenting, praying, fasting, planning, the whole group is intently focused on the vision as well as the strategy. So that's a little bit about the leadership style of Nehemiah. Jesus was the best leader in the Bible. We can learn so much from his leadership, servant leadership. But Nehemiah is a great study because we get to see it from start to finish in the book of Nehemiah. So here we are. Uh, after Ezra's prayer, that was last week, in Nehemiah 9, if you remember, uh, the last verse concludes with a declaration by the people. Chapter 9, verse 38, this is what it says. Now, because of all this, the people were saying, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priests. And so as we move into chapter 10, here's an outline of the chapter. Uh, verses 1 through 27 list the names of about 80 leaders who signed the covenant. And one thing I did not want to do this morning is read the names of those leaders, but I, I would assign that to you. Go and practice your Hebrew and read those names. Uh, that would have taken too long, and you would have laughed too loud. So we didn't do that. And then verses 28 and 29 identify the general obligations of the covenant. And I'd like to read those two verses as our primary passage for today. So this would be Nehemiah 10, verses 28 and 29, and I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll continue. Here's what it says. Now the rest of the people the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the non-Jewish peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, all those who were at a place where they could cognify that, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to see what you were saying to these folks. Help us to see what you're saying to us. And so we just want to commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a couple of things I think that need to be unpacked. One here in, this, in these two verses. Verse 29 speaks about taking on 
a curse, right? Did you catch that? And I'm thinking we should unpack that. In, in making this covenant, they were agreeing to accept a curse from God if they did not keep the covenant and obey God's law. I don't think this is a good idea. Do you know why it's not a good idea? Because there's no way that they can be perfectly obedient. They're going to blow it. It's going to fail. Uh, don't make that promise. Don't ask for the curse to be upon you. We spoke a few weeks ago about imprecatory prayers. Remember, and I did a blog post on this if you want to read more about it, but imprecatory prayers are prayers of judgment against our perceived enemies of God. And we talked uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, that that's not the wisest way to pray. That you might perceive someone as an enemy of, a, of God, whether it's a Democrat or Republican or whatever, and you might be, might be wanting to say that, and there's lots of other uh, people that we could pray against, but the best prayers are to pray for God's wisdom and discernment and salvation for the people that we might be thinking are hurting uh, our world or our church or our family or ourselves. So imprecatory prayers should be very, very rare. And so they're praying here an imprecatory prayer kind of against themselves. And so I would say, I, I'm not sure we should, we should copy that. Let's see what, if there's anything else I want to say. Yeah, God, they're inviting God's curse to come upon them in order to bring them back to a place of obedience. So it's, it's good-hearted. It's sincere. I'm just not sure it's smart. I think a lot of us have prayed a prayer along the lines of something like, Lord, do whatever it takes to keep me focused on you. And so that's, that, you're not asking to be cursed, uh, you're, but you are asking to be disciplined. And the New Testament talks about those whom he loves, he disciplines. So there's a fine line there that I think we should pay attention to. So that's about the curse. And then verses, uh, uh, chapter 10, verses 30 through 39, an agreement not to give their children in marriage to outsiders, to keep the Sabbath, to provide for ongoing maintenance of the temple worship, some specific... The, well, the three specific obligations of the covenant there. And so here, here are those specific ob, ob, uh, um, obligations of the covenant, starting in verse 30. They recommit to being faithful to God when it comes to their romantic relationships. And this was one of the main points from last week, from chapter 9. The New Testament equivalent of this, keeping our romantic relationships in accordance with God's will um, is from 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and 15. I want to read it again. It says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness and has a believer in common with an unbeliever. And so, uh, I think that's good for us just to say in church that as, as single people uh, who are looking to get married, some are not, uh, but I think this is a really important uh, part of faithfulness to the Christian experience. And as I was looking at this this last week, I, I noticed something that I, I think is worth unpacking this morning. I looked at this, and it says, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness. 
And I was thinking about an unchurched unbeliever who's considering the claims of Christ. Maybe that's somebody here today, somebody online. I certainly hope that our church attracts those kinds of people that are considering the claims of Christ. But can you imagine someone who's never read the Bible and is leaning in to us as a church or any church for that matter, and they see a verse that says basically Christians are righteous and non-Christians are lawless. Could you see how that could be uh, difficult for them to embrace? So I just want to take a moment and explain what is going on here uh, and unpack that idea of lawlessness. There is a theological phrase. Some of you have heard it. Some of you maybe have not. It's usually used in Reformed circles uh, that identifies our human condition as total depravity. Uh, that's, that's a theological term describing the human condition. Again, this can be confusing. It can spark reactivity in people. The idea of of total depravity, the idea of lawlessness, is not that we are depraved or lawless as we can be or could be. It's that we're incapable of maintaining a perfect moral standard on our own, by our own willpower. That's what it's speaking about their lawlessness or that concept of total depravity. And then I came up with this little thing. I think it's kind of cool. I hope you enjoy it. So we could say that we've been infected by a virus of depravity or lawlessness. It's in us, and it weakens our resolve. And this virus is called a sin nature. That's another theological term. And it's more deadly than COVID because we're actually born with it. And we could liken salvation to a vaccine which trains our immune systems to create proteins that fight disease known as antibodies. And when we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, we receive the vaccine of Christ's righteousness. I want to make sure you understand that. It's not our righteousness. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's Christ's righteousness, and this righteousness begins to fight our sin disease from the inside out. And so what, what the struggle that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the scribes was that they were trying, their righteousness was trying to come from the outside in. And Christianity is about a righteousness that starts deep within us. It's Christ's right, righteousness and it, and it starts within and, and moves from the inside out instead of trying. Willfulness, uh, moralism tries to look righteous, look like we have it together, and try and do it from the outside in. So that, that's a little bit of the difference. And then verse 31 is talking about re, uh, uh, they recommit to being faithful to God when it comes to doing business. And you can read that for yourself and in your business line of work and in our church, how, what would that look like? I'll let you do that. In verses 32 to 39, they recommit to being faithful to God when it comes to supporting God's work with their resources. And I should just stop here and, and again say thank you to everybody here. Thank you 
to those of you online, this last year, this whole year, our finances have remained very, very stable. So that has been just such a blessing. I, I would love for you to, to see or, or be able to say all the specific things we've been able to do uh, over the last year, we've given some of our staff some pretty significant raises to get them up to where they should be, and that's been helpful. Uh, other things that have happened around here, uh, it's just been awesome. Last year at this time, I think I've already mentioned this, we were month to month. We had basically no bank account a year ago today. And, and this, this year, this, at, at this moment, we have like three months uh, in the bank. Uh, so, th th God has been so faithful, so I just, the elders, staff, want to say thank you to you, thank you to those of you online. Now, I will say, last month we were a few thousand dollars short, and so if you want to catch up, uh, you're perfectly free to do that, or if you're not a giver yet and you feel like you want this to be your church and to give towards this church, you could certainly begin to do that. Okay, all that said. The end of Nehemiah 9 and 10 is an open door for us to consider what it means to covenant with a group of people in a healthy and holy way. Back in the fall of 2019, seems like a, a long time ago, doesn't it? Back in the fall of 19, the Vital Church Ministry did an extensive diagnostic online survey. Many of you participated and then a lot of individual interviews, and then they gave us a report back in the fall. And their recommendation number five, I think of eight recommendations to us, was to reconsider formal membership covenant as a congregation and leadership. We've talked a lot about that. We haven't gotten that far. We blame a lot of things on COVID. We could have gotten there, but COVID. I mean, that's kind of a, a basic um, response to that. But we've talked about it as a staff, and all the staff are on board with us moving back towards membership as a church. All the elders are on board with us moving back towards membership as a church. Uh, that probably won't happen while I'm here, but if we get everything ready and the permanent pastor comes in, I think you can move forward with this. And so I just want to go over some big picture pieces of what that might look like so we can begin to think about it. So I'm going to pivot, ask and try and answer three questions, and these will be quick too. Um, number one, what is a church? That's a good place to start, right? Number two, what does it mean to be a church member? And then number three, what is a, a church membership covenant? I'm just feeling like with a name like ours, Community Covenant Church, that we should have a basic understanding of what covenant means. And so let's go back and look at them one at a time. What is a church? Church is not a building. Church is a covenant people. Now, I think I've shared with this, this with you before. I have never referred to this building as a church. And I would prefer that you not either. But I know that's going to be really hard. We're so used to calling, well, I'll see you at church. You know, no, I'll see you at the church building for us to really own in our soul that the church is not a building, the church is a people, and more specifically, a covenant people. I like to think of the building, and I think I've shared this before, this is a sheep shed. That's what this is. 
Uh, it's, it's not a church. We are the church. And so I always refer to this, I'll see you at the church building. I talk about that. And I, it's just a little quirky thing for me that I just simply cannot call a structure uh, a church. So hopefully I've influenced you there. This means that we each have responded to Jesus Christ as the, uh, with true repentance and faith and are coming to see ourselves as he sees us. That's what it means. Here's one of my favorite verses. I think it's there. Yeah, Ephesians 2.10. We, we just, uh, not too long ago, finished a study in Ephesians. Uh, I can't remember if we really unpacked this verse the way that it deserves. And I can't do that today, but I can point out one word that's just awesome. For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Good works, it's the Greek word is the same word we get our word poem from. Uh, it's, it's a great word, and so what is that saying about you and me? Each of you, including me, we are a work of art. We are a poem written by God. I like to ask this question. What would your life like, how would your life be different if you really believe that? I am a work of art created by God, and he has prepared works for me to walk in as a believer. Such a beautiful and powerful verse, but that's what we, we are coming to see ourselves as God sees us. And that takes a lifetime, but there's, this is a wonderful journey. Okay, a second part about uh, what is a church. A church is not actively and intentionally turning from, uh, well, to be a church is actively and intentionally turning from self-orientation to God-orientation. We have trusted in the provision of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, for the forgiveness of our sins, for our salvation, we have been united, we have been unified by Christ, to Christ, by faith in him. The second part of church, to be the church, means that we have also identified ourselves with other Christians through baptism. Becoming part of the church through faith in Jesus and identifying with the death, the resurrection of Jesus through baptism introduces us to this new life and then we begin to arrange our lives in the light of this new reality of who we are and to whom we belong. And let me just say, because we have this baptism coming up, here at Community Covenant Church, we believe in believers' baptism by immersion. What does that mean? We mean that if you were baptized as a baby, we would strongly encourage you to be baptized again. Believer's baptism means you decide, I need to, I want to be baptized now. And by immersion is as opposed to sprinkling. Uh, we, think, we think you need to go all the way down. And some of you, we need to hold you down for just a little while uh, to make sure it takes. Uh, so we'll see how that all goes. 
but it, it's the idea of, you know, do you, do you want a little bit of, you do you want to be sprinkled with forgiveness, or do you want to be emerged into forgiveness? Do you want to be sprinkled with the grace of God, or do you want to be immersed and emerged into the grace of God? Those are ways to think about that. If you haven't been baptized of your own accord, I would consider, I would strongly encourage you to consider that happening. Okay, moving on. Uh, to be the church means that we are regularly joining with other believers in worship, and this means that we are active in the lives of other believers, encouraging them, speaking truth to them, listening to their exhortation, hearing truth back from them. It means that we are identifying and using our spiritual gifts to build up the church. The question is not if I am called to serve, the question is to whom and how am I called to serve? Uh, and, and here's one of the best definitions for me of worship. And we put it up here. Worship is our whole life response to God for His grace and His, for His greatness and His empowering grace. So a lot of times, you know, we get to thinking that worship is singing, but no, worship is a whole life response to God for His greatness and His empowering grace. Okay, to be the church means that we are engaged with other believers in living on mission in this world. We are seeking to lovingly and prayerfully make room uh, for the person, the work of Jesus Christ. We want to make that known to unchurched friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, etc. And we've talked about this before. We did a whole series on, uh, basically on oikos evangelism. Oikos means household. And we expanded that to, be, to, to mean our sphere of relationships. There's people in your life that you come in contact on a regular basis that are not churched people. They're, they're not necessarily believers. And we talked about the need to, to identify those people in our sphere of influence, to begin to pray for those people in our sphere of influence, to serve those people uh, in our sphere of influence, and in the fullness of time, when, it, when it's right to share the gospel. Uh, so our, our oikoses are probably a little bit smaller now, but they're going to get bigger again. So there's that. It means that we are actively sharing the message of Christ and showing the mercy of Christ to the people whom God has called us. It means that we move from being an observer at church to a participant in church, from a consumer in church to a contributor in church, using our gifts, using our time, our energy, our resources, to advance the purposes of God in this community, in this world. And then what does it mean to be a church member? To be a member of a church means that we officially and willingly belong to a group of people. And five just quick things, shared beliefs. That's what it means, we share. And I would say the gospel is central to this from Genesis to Revelation, the primary message of the Bible is the gospel. And we never outgrow our need for the gospel. Martin Luther, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And especially when we do really stupid stuff, we need to remind ourselves of the beauty, the wonder, the privilege of the gospel. 
Our sin, when we realize and confess our sin, that should move us to worship as we consider the beauty and the wonder and the mercy and the loving kindness has said of God. Number two, shared sacraments and ordinances. Uh, for the Protestant, that's um, baptism and communion. Uh, Catholics tend to call it sacraments. Protestants tend to call it ordinances. Seven sacraments. Protestant, two sacraments. Uh, baptism and communion. We don't care what people call it, sacraments or ordinances. You just should know that there's two different ways of looking at that. Either way is fine. Number three, shared practices. Living with the ethical vision of the kingdom of God, the citizen, as citizens of the kingdom of God, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We spent, almost, we spent a long time going through the Sermon on the Mount. That's the basics of the ethics of the kingdom of God by grace through faith. And then shared leadership in a church. A rotating plurality of elders. We have some new elders coming on board. More about that in the days ahead. Um, our church, this church, is what we call elder-led and staff-driven. The elders delegate oversight, all oversight, to all operations and all staff to the lead pastor and hold the lead pastor accountable. The elders also need to listen to the congregation about what the Spirit is saying to the church. The staff needs to listen. Elders and staff come together. Lead pastor, one of the elders, identifying the vision of God. What is the Spirit saying to Community Covenant Church in 2021? And then sermon series and lots of other things and ministries are developed so that we can focus on what we believe the Spirit uh, is saying to the church. And then we all work together to move that forward. Okay, and then shared purpose, carrying out the mission of Jesus. Uh, what is a membership covenant? I forget whether we put something up. Do we have a slide on membership covenant? Maybe not. Anyway, here it is because it can get weird, right? Is it there? Oh, good. Yeah, good. Covenants can get weird. We know that. A membership covenant with a local church is a promise that a Christian makes with God uh, that, makes with God, that particular local church, its members, and its leadership to meaningfully participate in the life and the mission of the church. That's not so weird or strange, is it? I think that's pretty well said, and we'll, as we get there, we'll probably add some other specific things, but basically, that's what it is. So as we close, thanks for your patience. What's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? Or the Old Testament and the New Testament? First, I think it's, it's, it's good to notice that they're both rooted in grace. Abram and Sarah to, uh, were chosen by God, by the grace of God, to launch the nation of Israel. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, Romans 4, 3. Both the Old Covenant, Old Testament, forgiveness of sins is temporary. God appointed Levites and priests to set up ceremonial laws to regularly participate in forgiving the sins of the people. 
it's good to notice that Old Testament believers were saved in the same way that we are. They were saved by faith in a future event, the future of the Messiah coming. We are saved by grace through faith in a past event. So there's, there's, there's more in common than sometimes we realize between the Old Testament and the New Testament. With the New Covenant Testament, Jesus fulfilled the entire law knowing that no other human could ever live their entire life in perfect obedience to the law of God, which is why we need Jesus. Here is something interesting about the Old Covenant. In, in Nehemiah 9.38, when they endeavored to renew the covenant, the, the literal translation that is used there is to cut a covenant. And we use something similar in our current vernacular business vernacular to cut a deal. And it goes back to the Old Testament. What does that mean? To cut a deal or to cut a covenant. Covenants in the Old Testament were cut because there was almost always an animal sacrificed as part of the covenant. So this is what that means. A covenant costs us something. It will always cost us something. The new covenant cost Jesus his life. In John chapter 1, a couple of different verses, he says this, the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins. No, it's actually singular, the sin, all-encompassing, the sin of the world. It cost him something. It's been said that becoming a Christian is free. But maybe you've also heard this, but, or and, yeah, and, it will cost you everything, right? It's free. It's a free gift, and it will cost you everything. It could change the direction of your life. I think I've told you before that at our, my 10-year high school reunion, I got an award, the most unlikely profession. It changed the direction. I was not headed, you know, to the ministry. Um, and maybe some of you have had to make adjustments and all that. Maybe some of you are still to be called to the ministry, but, but it, it, it costs us something. The Old and New Testaments are messy, aren't they? Really messy, filled with longing and loss and joy and victory and defeat. We can all learn something about wisdom and leadership and how to handle grief and loss and God's loving kindness and mercy. And we can also learn what not to do. One of my mentors used to say pretty regularly to me, knowing what not to do is just as good as knowing what to do. You get it? I hope you get it. So in the fullness of time, Jesus left the comfort, the perfection of heaven, came down into our brokenness like Nehemiah left the comfort of the palace went into the brokenness of the people. And so I guess we need just to ask, where are you? Are you in? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, knowing that moral, ethical perfection is beyond the capability of your willpower? your education, your learning. 
Maybe today's a day to re-up. Talking to you at home. Have you done this? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you let him come in and begin to change you and continue to change us from the inside out, which is the best way to change? So where do you stand today? If you want to talk to somebody, recommit or commit to the first time, whether it's online or whether it's here, we would love to talk to you. You can drop us an email. We would love to talk more about that. We want to be a safe place for people who are considering the claims of Christ to be able to come and, and listen and engage and, and hear the truth of God's word and some of these weird phrases that we oftentimes used uh, can be unpacked in a way that's helpful and strategic. So pray with me as we close. Lord, I do pray that you would trust us as a church with salvations. Lord, we want to see people come to faith in you and in this new season as vaccines roll out, um, as we get to begin to gather again, uh, as we begin to welcome guests and visitors in new ways into our church, as we continue to move forward with adding elders to the team and permanent pastor, replacement uh, for Susan, and all the things that you are doing and that you are about. We want to just give that to you and say, this is your church. Would you lead us and guide us and direct us in the way that you want us to go? You love this church. And many of us do too. And we ask that you would continue your faithfulness. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.